time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Joffre Horta Antonio, the maestro, the yes. greatest composer Devil. of his generation. Yeah, that's what I meant and, to say. A musical god. And, and we are fortunate enough that we call him a friend of our yes. shows and, and he he's hot. Use his music. I'm just throwing that out there, <laughs> not judging. The yeah, guy's hot. Well, Chrissy keeps saying, let's go to Barcelona. <laughs> I'm sure she does. Yeah. And he has cats and he likes kittens and, and stuff. And he's probably an acupuncturist. Damn him. <laughs> Ah, uh, it's an in-joke. Uh, welcome back to the Cold War. I think this is episode 17. Yeah, let's go with that. Uh, let's go with that. Yeah. Um, following on from our interview with Peter Elliard last time. Um, how are you, buddy? Doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Yeah? Before we get started with this, uh, there's a few things I wanted to touch on. Uh, a few touch thoughts it. that I had uh, between our last regular show and this show and then we'll get into the linear story um you know i think in in one of our last shows sort of uh, a couple of shows ago we were talking about the number of people that were imprisoned in the ussr during stalin's purges the Mm -hmm. the current estimates are 1.6 1.7 million and that sounds like a lot of people to have in prison but I was thinking that if you compare that to the U.S. today, where there's about 2.2 million people in prison, as I'm sure everyone has heard, the U.S. has more people in prison per capita than uh, any yeah. other country on the planet. As far as we know, I mean, there's some debate about China's numbers and how accurate they are. But, uh, you know, the, the U.S. has a lot of people in prison and... Um, you know, I think if you break it down per 100,000, in the U.S. is about 737 people per 100,000 in prison. Mm-hmm. During Stalin's purges, that would have been 1,310 people per 100,000. Right. So uh, almost double the uh, you know sort of per capita number that the U.S. has today. And there are obviously lots of other differences as well. The reasons behind the imprisonment, uh, their access to a trial... The people in Stalin's purges did have trials, supposedly, but they were sort of very quick trials. Uh, What do you all reckon? Is he guilty? Yeah, he's guilty. All right, right, throw him in prison. Um, But, you know, there's also a lot you could say about the United States' justice system being weighted against certain parts of the population. Uh, African-American men, for example. I know that the incarceration rates... Uh, disproportionately impact men of color in the U.S. One in every 15 African-American men and one in every 36 Hispanic men are incarcerated in comparison to one in every 106 white men. Now, unless you're prepared to say, well, that's just because they're badder than the white guys are, Mm. uh, it means that the, the justice system... 
Yeah. And 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 society uh, in many ways is weighted against people or men of color in particular in the U.S. Uh, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics in the U.S., one in three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetimes. I would freak. I have avoided jail thus far in my life, but I, I would totally freak well, we'll out. Our, I mean, we'll do our best in this series to do something <laughs> about that, particularly if Trump becomes president. Uh <laughs> Not to mention your chances of getting shot by a cop right. if you're black or Hispanic in the US. But look, I, I don't want to dwell too much on it, and it, it's a very complex subject. And uh, I know there are there are lots of uh, differences between the USSR under Stalin yeah, and the yeah. numbers in the US. Right. I'm not suggesting that they're uh, in in many ways comparable, but in terms of pure numbers. Right. Uh, there are more people in prison today than Stalin had in prison during yeah. the purges. It's a lot of people. And I do think that's worth thinking a little bit more about. Yeah. Um, one of the, in terms of talking about numbers too, something else I was reading about um, in the last few weeks was India. Mm-hmm. We talked about uh, you know the death tolls, the people that die during the, the famines, uh, right. uh, during... Stalin's attempts to uh, introduce five-year plans and to to upgrade Soviet Union's uh, yeah. agricultural capability, not to mention the people he had executed, etc. And we say, well, all those deaths uh, prove that communism is horrible and communism is bad and communism is an idea that uh, didn't work and shouldn't be avoided. But then if we look at what was going on in India at the same time, it's interesting to make a comparison. In 1947, just after World War II, uh, when the, the British decided or, or, or the, it was decided for them that they needed to mm-hmm. abandon their empire in India, right? they partitioned the Indian Empire into Pakistan and India, and there were massive riots. Uh, up to 2 million people died uh, and 14 million Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims were displaced during the partition. Uh, by, by displaced, obviously, I mean they had to they had to go live somewhere else. Right, they were, against their they, will. Yeah, yeah, they were moved from one side of the border to the other. Uh, it was the largest mass migration in human history, mm. and all of this happened in a democracy. Yeah. When uh, they were given their independence, the the Indians adopted sort of a British model of democracy. They they they, they also took a little bit apart, uh, a little bit of sort of the Soviet experience of a planned economy, which didn't really work very well for them either. But uh, like Russia after their revolution a few decades earlier, India at the time was one of the poorest countries in the world when it gained independence from Britain. They had no experience in self rule. Right. And and self rule, as uh, we all know, is a very hard thing. It it, it takes generations, centuries, yeah. maybe, for all countries to work out how to do self rule, how to self rule with, with, with uh, some form of uh, coherence. Uh, if you look at the the first couple of hundred years of the United Kingdom or, or Britain, let's say England, uh, the United States. Uh, when they got self-rule, it was uh, it was messy, man. Very, very messy. 
Yeah, you got to take the good with the bad, and the elites rule for a while, and then just like with Rome, and then the uh, the commoners try to rise up to a certain degree and demand a certain amount of rights. You got to you got to get that balance just right, and that takes a while. And while that's going on, a lot of people either die or suffer o- over that entire phase, and and it, then it still happens. You just try to do a better job of it. And that's true whether it's communism or democracy, and I think India is a good example. And we'll probably do some episodes on this later on in the series. And economic historians have blamed uh, Britain's colonial rule for the dismal state of India's economy and its aftermath. And, uh, you know, they say that one of the reasons India was in such a fucked up state was that the Brits had built their own empire and their own industrial development which helped mm-hmm. turn Britain into a global powerhouse in the 19th and early 20th centuries by wealth taken from India so this is yeah. part of the globalization uh, argument that I have what Peter Elliott might call cowboy globalization right where it's it's a win lose it's not a win win it's we're going to take all of your shit and uh, take it back to our country for our own prosperity and just leave you as a big hole in the ground with people starving. Even after nearly 70 years of independence, a massive percentage of India's population still lives in poverty. According to the World Bank, the world had about 872 million people below the poverty line in 2011, and about 180 million of those lived Mm. in India. So in other words, India, with 17.5% of the world's total population, had 20.6% of the world's uh, poverty, uh, people living in poverty in 2011. Now, this is after 70 years of uh, democracy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you you hear a lot about the failure of communism in the Soviet Union to raise people's living standards and... and, uh, yeah, the people will often make the um, comparison between that and well, if only they'd had democracy. Uh, well, India is an example where people have had democracy and uh, still has not worked out well yeah. uh, for everybody. I mean, there's obviously some incredibly wealthy people in India, also some incredibly wealthy people in Russia right now yeah. as well. But still, and, and you can look at the USSR as another example. So the Soviet Union collapsed 25 years ago was replaced with a market economy. Everyone applauded. Hooray! Uh, And today they're all living in paradise, right? No, not not so much. They've had the same leader for years, and they're going to have the same leader for until he dies. If if I can add something to the India thing, because I I read a book on Lord Mountbatten, who was there, the Viceroy of India, when it fell apart. Um, It was really interesting because the Indians, uh, the people of that region made it clear that they were going to partition... Britain better get on board or they were get, going to get run over. And Britain only had so many resources because, like you said, this is coming after World War II. So they do everything they possibly can. But what the problem was was that India was declared free before they did the partition. So it was a total clusterfuck. Um, and the religions just went after each other. Out of a lot of those people that died, some of them were just murdered for different for religious differences. And the one thing, and we've said this a billion times on various um uh, podcast, but there's there's certainly some very negative things about religion. I think I read somewhere as far as the whole Indian everybody being moved around and suffering and starving to death and stuff like that. I think there were like eight thousand women 
that this was the reported cases. So the answer, the uh, number is probably a lot bigger. There was 8,000 women who were abducted by people during the, the great migrations or they're the moving around. And then eventually they were freed and they were told they could go to wherever their people were at. And they were saying, no, I'm not going to go because, because I've been raped, because I've been held captive or whatever. Uh, I, if I go back to my family because of their, because of their culture, because of their religion, I will be judged and I will be not treated very nicely or killed or whatever. And so a lot of them refused to go to their families once they were freed. So again, the British screwed this up royally, but the Indians technically were supposed to be helping with civil defense. But because of religion, because of prejudice and racism and everything else, it was a total clusterfuck. But because you had millions and millions of people, it made this problem just that much more bigger. And it was just a huge, just a tragic part of their history that I wish I could say that it's over with, but obviously there's still the caste system. There's still people judging people. There's still um, honor killings and all that stuff when it comes to women and rape and all. I don't know. So they've got a long way to go. But yeah, like you said, they've had freedom for 70 years and they still haven't got their act uh, together. And that's unfortunate, but that's just some of the many influences that Peter was talking about that can hold people back if they let them. I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize it as they don't have their act together. I would say that these things are complex. Oh, absolutely. Build, building countries, uh, running a, a society, uh, particularly when you're trying to feed a billion odd people. Yeah. These are complex problems. And I, I guess that's my point. It, it's it's people tend to oversimplify the Soviet Union and say, oh, look, you know, they were, uh, communism failed. Right. Um, But then, you know, I'll try and point out, well, look at the size of the population. Look at where they were left after the czars were kicked out in 1917. They were backwards. Then they had famines for a variety of reasons. Then they they had two world wars that were massively devastating. Then Mm -hmm. they got into a a Cold War fucking shootout with the U.S., which drained their economy. The richest country in the world. Yeah, they they were up against the richest country in the world. Yeah, to, to to build a defense system to to stave off what they thought, rightly or wrongly, was an imminent attack that was going to come from the U.S., which drained their economy. So it's far more complex, I guess that's my point. When you yeah. look at the USSR or you look at India, by the way, speaking of the USSR, so they've, as I said, they've had a market economy now for 25 years, still 19.2 million Russians or 13.4% of the population living in poverty after 25 yeah. years of after the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union and, and the market economy coming into play. So you don't hear anyone, though, going, oh, look at Russia. They've had capitalism and democracy for the last 25 years, and they've still got 20 million people in poverty. Obviously, democracy doesn't work right. or capitalism doesn't work. Right. People go, well, you have to, you know, it's not <laughs> really yeah, it's yeah. not really a democracy because they've got Vladimir Putin as an autocrat. Yeah, right. And so I also say, well, the Soviet Union wasn't really communism because you had Stalin as an autocrat. Exactly. And people go, wow, well, now, now you're just making excuses. Right. No, I'm explaining but, more but, accurately than, yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's, it's okay it's to make complex. an excuse to say, well, they, they don't have democracy because they've got Putin as an autocrat. But right. if you say, that's okay. But if you say they didn't have com- real communism because they had Stalin as an autocrat, well, now you're just uh, yeah. an apologist. <laughs> Um, moving on, war profiteering we mentioned. Um, I read some great stuff recently about Donald Trump's father, who, Uh-oh. believe it or not, his name was Fred Christ Trump. <laughs> Christ was 
Christ was his middle name. Oh. Uh, I'm surprised that Donald Trump doesn't get around I... calling himself Donald Christ Trump. Christ Apparently, second. Christ was Fred Trump's mother's maiden name. And no. in that weird American tradition uh, where children end up with their mother's maiden names as their right. middle name, as right. in Fox Dunaway Riley. Yeah. Um, which is a weird American thing. We don't do that here, but it's a thing. Uh, he was Fred Christ Trump. It's an awesome fucking name. Uh, in 1954, he was a property developer. And in 1954, he was accused during the Senate Banking Committee of defrauding the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration. The FHA was set up by FDR during the Depression to make sure loans were ab- available to veterans of World mm-hmm. War II so they could buy a house. Obviously, Great That's Depression, nice. yeah. blah, blah, blah. Banks, banks were being careful about who they lent money out to. Uh, veterans are coming back. They don't have anything. And so FDR set up the FHA. And um, shut up, Siri. And uh, Trump Sr., Fred Christ Trump, <laughs> uh, made millions by buying land cheaply, then renting it back to another one of his corporations Get at inflated f- prices, and then borrowing millions more in uh, federally subsidized funds. Uh, than he actually needed. And Eisenhower, who was president at the time, was furious oh, yeah. that the system was being rorted. Uh, but Trump got away with it because what he did was actually legal. Uh, totally immoral, uh, yeah. but legal because no one had thought to close the loopholes. So uh, yeah. classic example of Trumpism yeah. and war profiteering there that I thought was a little bit relevant. I thought you were going to say he got away with it because his middle name was Christ. Christ. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he had this whole campaign. Yeah. <laughs> I died for your sins. If he made um, millions in the mid-50s, oh, my yeah. God. That's just yeah. staggering. Yeah. Three, well, uh, yeah, $3.7 million he uh, borrowed uh, in federally subsidized funds. So these are basically very, very cheap loans. Right. That he, he made a lot of money, to, yeah. That he made a lot of money out of. Jeez. Um, and the last point dead. before we last point before we get into it on economics and war, I came across this speech that FDR gave in Boston during his campaign for his third term in 1940. Mm-hmm. He was talking about war orders, uh, where uh, so this is before America got involved in World War One officially in 41, uh, where they were. America was making military equipment being sent to Britain as part of uh, Lend-Lease. And he said, You good people here in Boston know of the enormous increase of productive work in your Boston Navy Yard. The citizens of Seattle, you have watched the Boeing plant out there grow. Uh, Similarly, he addressed listeners in Southern California, Buffalo, St. Louis, Hartford, and Patterson, New Jersey, all communities where war orders were terminating a dreary decade of mass unemployment. Mm. Roosevelt well understood the cold political logic of rising employment. These foreign orders mean prosperity in this country, he said. Thanks largely to British weapons purchases, by election day, nearly three and a half million more workers were employed than in the trough of the Roosevelt recession of 37-38. Unemployment had shrunk by the end of 1940 to 14.6%, its lowest level in 10 years. Wow. And was swiftly trending lower still. And that's even before the US got involved in the war directly. That's just by, you know, the the, the benefits uh, to US employment by 
building shit for England right. for the war. And if I could just add a little bit to that. Yeah, so since this is um, in 1940, he's running for his third term, obviously very important. He was trying to do the unthinkable, the unprecedented. But because this is right before the Lend-Lease, which is March of 1941, Britain was paying us for all the stuff. So not only were these guys working, we were actually getting paid. It wasn't just a promissory or, or whatever. There was cash or gold or whatever coming into the United States economy. And you've got to think that, yeah, if, if, he, if he can reduce the number of unemployed when he does run for election and he gives lip service to, we're going to get into this later, about keeping America out, the, out of the war. Yeah, this guy has a really good chance of being elected his third term very astute politician right but my point is that uh, america was all, already benefiting oh absolutely uh, from absolutely the war uh, yeah. even before they got involved in it. economically benefiting out absolutely of the war going on yeah final point before we get stuck into it and i know we're 20 minutes into the show and we haven't really got into it but uh well, we did a survey yeah. uh recently to find out, those of you who are subscribed to the show, uh, where did you come from? Ray and I had been talking about it. And I had a theory. I don't know who why that's funny. I, I had been, you know, our theory when we stopped doing, well, no, when we, when we did a more modern history show with this one, a 20th century history show rather than Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great, that it might be uh, attractive to a new audience of listeners mm -hmm. that have never heard our stuff before. They might go, well, we're not really interested in ancient history, but um, Cold we'll War, sure, yeah. that, we'll, we'll yeah. check that out. And um, I, I'd done some studies, uh, some looked at some stats, and I thought our Cold War show audience was about 50-50 old audience with right. new audience. Uh, so we, we threw out this survey uh, to the listeners, and about two-thirds of you replied, and thank you for those that did that. Yes. Of the two-thirds that replied, 94% of you said that you actually were listeners to our other shows. Only 6% of you are new listeners. Right. And so that was one big learning. The other learning was uh, people don't know how to answer a two-question survey. <laughs> Question one was... Uh, have you listened to our other podcasts? Are you a listener of our other podcasts? Question two was, if no, then how did you discover us? And uh, the vast majority of people who answered question two said, uh, because uh, I heard you talk about it on the Alexander show or the Caesar show. <laughs> Going, no, you dumb motherfuckers. The question was, no. if no, then. So we love I, you. Thank yes. you for subscribing. But you're, some of you are just dumb. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so for whatever percentage is a carryover, thank you for your loyal patronage, and we hope you yeah. enjoy. Yes. Yeah, no, seriously, we, we do genuinely appreciate it. Even mm -hmm. those of you that don't know how to Who don't know how answer to read a question. Or click yeah, appropriately. Don't know how to read. We love you anyway. <laughs> we love your money. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll ta yeah, there's no pride here. Uh, yeah. No, no seriously, pride. thanks, guys. We, we, we do genuinely appreciate the support. So let's... Make good on that support and get into it. We left off uh, last time, which would have been episode 15, I guess, before the Peter Elliott interview, talking about the second right. Moscow conference, that first historic meeting between Churchill and Stalin. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. I just wanted to do the music. Right. That's your contribution? Or no, I, I, I thought you were going to play music or something. No, I was just going to say it was August 12, 42 to August 17, 42. And not to jump too far ahead, but Churchill's in the 60s. He's been around for a long time. He's seen everything. He is going to have to bring all that experience to bear because he is about to run up <clears throat> against Stalin. And I think we've established this. Excuse me. <clears throat> I think we've established this. One of the most cynical, untrusting SOBs out there. And he's got to go to him and go... 
you know, I'm going to tell you some things you don't want to hear. I hope we can still be friends. He's bringing back. Yeah, Stalin, Stalin was very suspicious that Churchill might be trying to make a deal with Hitler behind yeah. his back. We talked in the last time about uh, Rudolf Hess's mission and Olivia Newton-John, etc., etc. But Churchill said that their first meeting, uh, on the first day of their first meeting, it went well. But the next day they met again. And this time Stalin accused Britain of being afraid of the Germans. In Churchill's, in Churchill's memoirs, he wrote, he said a great many disagreeable things, especially about our being too much afraid of fighting the Germans. And if we tried it like the Russians, we should find it not so bad. Ouch. Ouch. It's like, <laughs> he basically called them pussies. Yeah. If I can, if I can add on to that just for a second, so so Russia, uh, so Churchill arrives in Moscow around seventeen hundred five o'clock, and by nineteen hundred hours um, seven o'clock, he is in the presence of Stalin and the Kremlin, and he pretty much has to go. Okay, yes, we told you there would be a second front, but no, there won't be a second front at least at least until nineteen forty three. Not really sure. Got to get together with FDR. So by the time they get together the next day, that is when Stalin just starts unloading on him because he's you know, this is this is forty two. He's been attacked since June of nineteen forty one. It's it's looking really bad for the Soviets. They're being beaten everywhere. They've lost mil and I literally mean this, millions of men out on the battlefield. And so it's like, I need help now. And you're telling me, you keep telling me you're going to do the second front, but I don't see anything. If you don't hurry up, I might not be here to be your partner. So this, you can give Stalin all the shit you want, but this was very serious for him. He was losing people, towns, villages, supplies, resources, everything left and right across the entire front. He needed some help and he was at his breaking point. Yeah. And as I think I mentioned in one of our earlier shows, Churchill uh, criticized the Russians and Stalin for not being better prepared uh, for Germany's attack. And yet here we are uh, a year later, Stalin yeah. saying help and Churchill saying, yeah, we're just not ready. Um, <laughs> now, it wasn't just Stalin who wanted the second front. It was also right. the Yanks. Most of the American military uh, officials, including the chief of staff of the army, George Marshall, a.k.a. the Marshall Plan, later on, uh, also wanted uh, a, to open a second front. Uh, so did Roosevelt, I think, in the uh, early stages. He was all for it, uh, but Churchill eventually yeah. convinced him to put it off. Uh, and FDR eventually agreed he uh, he also figured that the U.S. forces weren't ready for a major campaign, and he also thought the American people needed to experience some success in a minor way uh, in the war before risking the huge casualties that they'd probably be facing if they started an invasion on the Western Front. What what do you think of that rationale? Yeah, well, first of all, you have to understand the American mentality. And, and I'm not saying that other countries don't have this, but it certainly is American. If you have a problem, you find the shortest, most direct path and you go for it. And that is to someone like General Marshall to land in northern France like you did, you know, like we did during World War One, land in France and then just drive on the, to Berlin. So that makes sense from that point of view. But Churchill and, and, and but Churchill is absolutely right. You can't take a country like America who does not want to go to war 
go to war, land in France, you have no practice, you have no experience, you haven't been able to do, you haven't been able to bloody your mannequin experience, and you know you're going to suffer huge casualties, and you might you might even be kicked off the continent, so you don't start this, risk losing everything, and then still expect the American people to support you. So that would have been a huge risk, really an unacceptable risk. So Churchill was right, and he when he explains it to FDR in that terms, um, FDR absolutely agrees with that, who is not a military man. He knows he's not a military man. He's going to leave this to Marshall, but he is going to dabble in this. And he's he going was to say, the assistant secretary of the Navy. What are you right, talking no, about? He's no, not a military that, man. No, I mean, as far as, you know, landing forces and all that stuff, uh, he's not going to try and run the war the way Churchill constantly meddled with his officers, with his, uh, with his generals. Right. He's going to keep, he's going to stay out, but he, he's absolutely right. We got to, first of all, we're not even in the war, you know, I mean, excuse me. First of all, we, we're not even on the continents. We've got to get some victories. We got to build up our confidence. We got to build up our experience because at that moment in time, the Germans have the most experienced army on the planet. You've got to, you've got to catch up before you can take them on head to head. Yeah, it's kind of um, hard to remember the days when America wasn't the world's military superpower, but we have to keep reminding ourselves, I think, that uh, in 1942, America yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, as I think you mentioned uh, earlier on, when FDR was campaigning for his third term in 1940, uh, part of his campaign promise was that mm -hmm. America wasn't going to get into the war. That was that was uh, the the thinking that he campaigned on. That's what yeah. he got voted in for. We're going to stay out of this war. It's not our war. It's another European conflict. Right. But and, secretly, yeah. he knew he was going to get into the war as soon as he got elected. Yeah, it, it was going to happen because he couldn't let um, Germany win, obviously. But that was the other part. Like you were saying, during the election, he's like, that's why we have Lend-Lease. We are going to be the arsenal of democracy. We are going to arm those who are going to fight, but we are not going to fight. This is not, not our problem. This is not our cause. We certainly want one side to win and one side to lose, but this is not our fight. Let's just do what we can to help those who are fighting. Yeah, and I... I was reading a new book. Well, not a new book, a new book for me. Um, in fact, the author of it, Campbell Craig, uh, is coming on the show in a few cool. weeks. He's uh, an academic from, I think, Oxford. Um, yeah, One of those. Oxford. Yeah. yeah, and very eminent historian on the Cold War who's going to be coming on the show. Nice. But he was explaining in his book that this this view that most Americans had and had had forever of uh, this isolationist view was because they had the security of the oceans. Mm -hmm. There's usually a term for it. I can't remember what it is, but that uh, it wasn't Amer wars going on in Europe wasn't America's problem because America's not in Europe and there was, a, you know, some big oceans in between them. And so uh, it was, they, they had the, the security, the defense of, you know, being a, a separate yeah, uh, large moats. Yeah, uh, yeah, very large yeah, moats. Exactly. Large moats. But uh, the Roosevelt knew because of scientists like um, Leo Zizard and uh, Einstein had communicated to him that the Germans were working on nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And there was this idea, well, you didn't have to land an army uh, on the 
coast of New Jersey right. uh, to is New Jersey on the coast? Yes. I don't even know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> to 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 you never see Tony Soprano at the beach. Oh, he did. He did have a beach house at one stage. Yeah. Um, to you didn't have to land forces uh, to attack. All it would take is a couple of bombs. Yeah. Uh, to be dropped, and that could be enough. So there was this genuine threat even though it's still difficult to fly a plane from the europe or right. even if germany had taken over the uk to fly a plane uh, undetected and then to be able to drop enough bombs on the us to make it uh, interesting right. but it was a genuine threat they didn't know how Absolutely. far advanced the nazis were uh in developing nuclear weapons but it was a. It was perceived as a genuine enough threat that they had to start their own Manhattan Project, and we're going to talk about that in a huge detail in future episodes. Yeah, if I could just add to that real quick, yeah. So the opening of 1942, uh, Britain realizes that Germany is working on the atomic bomb. They tell the Americans, the Americans are like, well, we can't do much about it. Off you go to, to, to Churchill. And I actually, what, maybe 10 episodes ago on the World War II podcast, I interviewed a guy who wrote a book on it. And because there was so much that we didn't know what was going on in Berlin and what Germany was doing, uh, they literally had, the Americans had to step up their game and the British literally did everything they could uh, with the help of some Norwegians, I believe, to sabotage what the Germans were trying to do. So this was a very real fear. And yeah, the the uh, you don't have to land an army. You can just go over there and obliterate it and things are changing. And so because of that, FDR knows that, yes, we're going to get into it and we need to get into it before something like that, that before Germany is capable of something like that. But at the same time, they didn't even know if it could be done, if right. they could do it. I mean, FDR it was kicked at, off yeah. the Manhattan Project, but it was this... Fanciful, uh, yeah. Yeah, outside chance that they might develop something. It, it wasn't something you could rely upon. They needed right. to engage but in, if there's in a, a traditional war. Right, but if there's a 1% chance, you have yeah. to assume it could happen. And they spent billions on that 1% chance. <laughs> That's right. 1940 <laughs> billions. Wow. Anyway, um, getting back to the Second Front, uh, there were Americans at the time who were critical of the decision to suspend opening the Second Front. They suspected that Churchill's rationale was that he wanted to secure the Mediterranean basin for the British Empire, uh, and that was his reason for actually putting off the Second Front. But anyway, they, uh, Churchill and Stalin finished on a good note uh, on the second day. Churchill was invited to dine at the Kremlin, and uh, he tells this great story, a couple of great stories, actually, in his memoirs that I'd like to retell. If Before says, you... I'm sorry, yes. because these are kind of lengthy, lengthy. I just want to get back to something, just to, to offer, uh, not an opposing view, but just to offer more to the story. When uh, when the Americans and everyone else, rightly so, were uh, worried about the, uh, the British being obsessed with the Mediterranean, what was going on at the time in 1942 was that the British were trying very hard to resupply uh, Malta, uh, because if they lost Malta right there, the island right there in the middle of the, the Mediterranean, if they lost that, they would have a heck of a time resupplying their troops in, in North Africa. So if they lose Malta, they lose North Africa, 
if they lose North Africa, they lose Egypt. If they lose Egypt, they lose the Middle East. And then suddenly they're not getting the oil that they need. And so they had been sending convoys that were being absolutely slaughtered by the Italian ships and the German bombs. And so they launch Operation Pedestal, which is in the middle of 42, the largest convoy they had tried so far. So even though this looked one this looked kind of bad from the American point of view, from the British point of view, this was absolutely key because they could have lost the entire theater of North Africa, Middle East, Egypt, if, if they, if they lost Malta. And so this is very important to them to keep getting their oil, to keep their war machine going. So it looked self-serving and let's be honest, it was, but there were certainly other factors involved into it that maybe the other people weren't privy to, or they just didn't care to focus on. Well, you're right. And and the most important fear I think Churchill had about losing Malta was if they lost Malta, they'd lose their supply of malt, which meant he couldn't have a malted milkshake with his cigars. This is Churchill's uh, uh, recount of it in his memoirs. During the dinner, Stalin talked to me in a lively fashion through his interpreter Pavlov, who'd taken some time out from looking after his dogs, apparently. Some years ago, he said, we had a visit from Mr. George Bernard Shaw and Lady Astor. Lady Astor suggested that Mr. Lloyd George should be invited to visit Moscow, to which Stalin had replied, why should we ask him? He was the head of the intervention. Uh, So the intervention he's talking about after the revolution, when the the Brits tried to intervene and support the white Russians, the the, Mm -hmm. uh, royalists against the uh, revolutionaries. On this, Lady Astor said, that is not true. It was Churchill who misled him. Anyhow, said Stalin, Lloyd George was head of the government and belonged to the left. He was responsible, and we like a downright enemy better than a pretending friend. (laughs) Well, Churchill has finished finally, said Lady Astor. I'm not so sure, Stalin had answered. Can you do that in a Russian accent? Can you do it in a Russian accent, please? I am not so sure. Stalin had answered, If a great crisis comes, the English people might turn to the old war horse. Yes. At this point, I interrupted, saying, There is much in what she said. I was very active in the intervention, and I do not wish you to think otherwise. He smiled amicably, so I said, Have you forgiven me? Premier Stalin, he stay, said interpreter Pavlov. All that is in the past, and the past belongs to God. Good job. Why why is a communist mentioning God? God? But anyway, that was impressive, Cam. Thank you for that. Now, of course, I can't mention Lady Astor, who was the first female uh, minister of parliament in England, by the way, without telling the famous story about the famous insult that Churchill directed at either Lady Astor or the socialist MP Bessie Braddock, depending on which version of the story you hear. Whichever one of them it was, she allegedly said, Winston, Winston, you are drunk. And what's more, you are disgustingly drunk. Uh, Whereupon Churchill replied, My dear, you are ugly. And what's more... You are disgustingly ugly. But tomorrow, I shall be sober. And you will still be disgustingly ugly. 
What a, what a charmer. What a charmer. Oh, my God. Yeah, um, Churchill historians believe the story is fictional, but it's fucking good. So Doesn't I'm matter. Doesn't it. matter. Yeah. I hope it's true. I want it to be yeah. true. <laughs> the next day, Churchill uh, went to say farewell to Stalin at 7 p.m. Uh, Churchill says, Our hour's conversation drew to its close and I got up to say goodbye. Stalin suddenly seemed embarrassed and said in a more cordial tone than he had yet used with me, You are leaving at daybreak. <laughs> Why should we not go to my house and have some drinks? I like where this is going. <laughs> I think he was trying to soften him up. A little Something. bit of ass, little bit of ass play. Just uh, like Vegas, baby. Yeah. Stick it in Stalin. That's what they called him. <laughs> Man of Steel, baby. He wasn't called that for nothing. The real truth you only learn here. Yeah, and Churchill was a private school boy. We know what That's that right. means. That's right. He's used to taking it. Yeah. I said that I was, in principle, always in favor of such a policy. The drinking, not the... Have some drinks. Taking it, yes. I love that. I love that he writes that in his own memoirs. So he led the way through many passages and rooms till we came out into a still roadway within the Kremlin and in a couple of hundred yards gained the apartment where he lived. He showed me his own rooms, which were of moderate size, simple, Mm -hmm. dignified, and four in number. A dining room, working room, bedroom and a large bathroom. Hell yeah. He's got the right priorities. Presently, there appeared first a very aged housekeeper and later a handsome red-haired girl who kissed her father dutifully. He looked at me with a twinkle in his eye, as if, so I thought, to convey, you see, even will Bolsheviks have family life. Mm. Stalin's daughter started laying the table, and in a short time, the housekeeper appeared with a few dishes. Meanwhile, Stalin had been uncorking various bottles, which began to make an imposing array. Then he said, Why should we not have Molotov? He is worrying about the communique. We could settle it here. There is one thing about Molotov. He can drink. (laughs) I love that. That's his thing. That's his summary of Molotov. My foreign minister. He can drink. That's no, how you judge he's a, a very astute politician. Yeah. He's a brilliant intellect. Well, he can drink. No, he's got a good he, liver. He knew that would impress Churchill anyhow. Yeah. Uh, Churchill also says he brought up, and this is the point of this, he brought up the collectivized farms and the kulaks. And he writes, um, I thought you would have found it bad. I can't tell which is my Churchill accent and which is my Stalin accent. Now they believe this is my Churchill accent. Right, okay. I thought you would have found it bad because you were not dealing with a few score thousands of aristocrats or big landowners, but with millions of small men. Ten millions, Stalin said, holding up his hands. It was fearful. Four years it lasted. It was absolutely necessary for Russia if we were to avoid periodic famines, to plough the land with tractors. We must mechanise our agriculture. When we gave tractors to peasants, they were all spoiled in a few months. Only collective farms with workshops could handle tractors. We took greatest trouble to explain it to peasants. It was no use arguing with them. After you have said all you can to peasant... He says he must go home and consult his wife, and he must consult his herder. What happened? Churchill says he asked. 
Oh, well, Stalin replied. Many of them agreed to come in with us. Some, were, some of them were given land of their own to cultivate in the province of Tomsk or the province of Irkutsk or farther north, but the great bulk were very unpopular and were wiped out by their laborers. There was a considerable pause. Mm. Then Stalin said, Not only have we vastly increased food supply, but we have improved quality of grain beyond all measure. All kinds of grain used to be grown. Now no one is allowed to sow any but the standard Soviet grain from one end of country to other. Mm. If they do, they are severely dealt with. This means another large increase in food supply. <laughs> you, can, you can grow more food or you can reduce the number of mouths. I chose to do both. That's what Stalin's <laughs> saying. Well, yeah, but he's also sort of... This is, again, this is Churchill's telling of what right. Stalin told him. He's saying, look, Stalin was fairly pragmatic about it. He was like, listen, we had to do something or we were going to continue to have famines. Uh, you know, Stalin's... Uh, experiments in collectivized agriculture uh, uh, are blamed on the famines, and yeah. that is that is genuine. You know, it was a, it was a clusterfuck. But he's also saying, look, we were having famines already. We will continue yeah. to have famines. Absolutely. So we had to do something, and and the the peasant farmers just we you know we tried to we tried to give them equipment, give yeah, them tractors. Yeah, they didn't want to get on board. I mean, these are people who have been farming the same way they've been farming probably Generation. for centuries. Yeah, yeah. You give them new technology, and they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't have the the they didn't see the need for it. Right. They didn't have the they didn't have the nationalist outlook of the urgency yeah. for this that Stalin had. And so he decided to force them at the point of a gun to get with the program or go to a fucking, you know, collectivized farmer or kulak. Anyway, after the meeting, Churchill later said, I expect I shall establish a solid and sincere relationship with this man. Mm. So that's how their first uh, series of meetings uh, concluded. Right. And I, I have a slightly different take on the end. Um, Let's see here. Uh, so when they're sitting there drinking for hours, Churchill, as far as I can tell, gets back to his uh, dacha at three o'clock in the morning. And they're waiting for him as the British ambassador to Russia. His name is Clark Kerr. And he says Churchill returned in a triumphant mood. And he lay down on the sofa and he announced that he had cemented a friendship with Stalin and that it was a pleasure to work with that great man. So, yeah, I think they both kind of, uh, you know, you could bitch at each other during the day, but when the sun goes down, you drink a lot, you share, share some stories, and you have a good time. I do have to mention this. Um, that little red-headed girl who was setting the table uh, on my last bio episode of Stalin when he's locked in prison during World War One, he gets several women pregnant in the prison, and one of them is a 14-year-old. So Stalin is... He's a busy man. I don't know. So, you, so I wonder what this girl. Virginia doing. rules, man. Virginia rules. <laughs> so anyway, just wanted to share that little antidote with you. Antidote, yeah. no, not yeah. antidote. Despite that charming story that Churchill told, um, we know that Stalin wasn't a very good family man. Uh, his relationships <laughs> with his such. various wives and his children yeah. uh, were not great. Not solid. <clears throat> as we see when he dies uh, many, many years later. Um, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and, I, and I think these, these stories uh, uh, are important because it indicates the, the 
genuine respect that Churchill had for Stalin and mm-hmm. vice versa, I think. I think yeah. these guys both respected each other as war horses. Exactly. They've been around a long time. They fought their own battles and uh, both internally yeah. and yeah. Uh, externally. And they're both brilliant, uh, intellectually, uh, very, very capable, very, very smart uh, guys. Mm-hmm. But, as I said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and that cuts both ways because the communists were the enemies of both Britain and Germany, despite the fact that their uh, current friends, Stalin, believes that really uh, he can't trust the British or the Americans because fundamentally, ideologically, this, this friendship is opportunistic. Ideologically, they are fundamentally opposed to communism, as are the Nazis. Yeah, marriage of convenience and nothing more. Um, We know from the Soviet archives that even after this meeting with Churchill, Stalin told his comrades that he didn't trust Churchill or the Americans. And it it was soon um, after this meeting that Churchill made his oft-quoted remark, I cannot for... I cannot... (laughs) I have to, I have to, I have to get into character. Switch I have to imagine gears. myself fat guy with a right, cigar, right? right As exactly. opposed to a fat guy with a mustache and a right. cigarette. I cannot forecast to you the actions of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a key. That key is Russian national interest. And he was right. The famous riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But yes, Russian national interest. I think that is absolutely the key. Churchill fucking nailed it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but see, here's the thing. Um, everybody's looking out for themselves. Russia is, is trying to fight off Germany to have, to have peace so they can get on with their great you know, uh, communist experiment or whatever. And Churchill's trying to literally not only win this war, but keep the British Empire for him. He doesn't want anything to change. So they're both coming at this, uh, like Peter said in the in the last show, they're both coming at this with their own agenda, with their own selfish ways. Of course, they can't trust each other because even though they have this one little tiny point in common, when it's the second, the second that is done, the second that a threat is removed, they're both going to start thinking about themselves and their countries and nothing else. So there has to be a clash at, at some point. But the fact that they're getting along, along right now is only because of the massive threat that is Hitlerism. Yeah. Stalin uh, feared that British policy was to sit back and watch Germany and Russia bleed each other dry. And he probably wasn't wrong on that. Um, In fact, that was also the policy of some people in the US anyway. Uh, The New York Times on the 24th of June 1941, so going back just around the time of Barbarossa, quoted Truman, who at the time was a senator from Missouri and the chairman of the Truman Committee, which was looking into fraud and waste in U.S. military contracts. Mm -hmm. He said, if we see that Germany is winning, we ought to help Russia. And if Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany. (laughs) And that way, let them kill as many as possible. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Remember that quote when we get to the Potsdam Conference in a few years. Yeah. 
Now, the other part of it, the other thing that Stalin was mad about was because at this point, the supplies uh, from Lindley's had really cut back um, from Britain. But again, just, just to give that more context, it isn't Stal- it isn't uh, Churchill just being a dick. Um, there was a specific uh, cargo convoy, excuse me, trying to get to Archangel, and it was called the P- PQ-17 convoy. And because they were trying to get a whole bunch of supplies to them, they sent 39 ships with as many uh, escorts as they possibly could. But because of the German submarines and bombing, out of those 39 ships carrying supplies, 24 of them were sunk, destroyed, whatever. So there's no point in the British trying to send something to Russia if they're not going to get it there. If they're going to end up losing a whole bunch of ships and a whole bunch of su- supplies and men, it's literally a waste of time. So until they can figure out how to, to combat the German wolf packs is no point in sending it. So there was a sharp decrease in the amount of supplies to Soviet Russia at this time. But again, they were very practical reasons. But you've got to think Stalin, who has lost over a million soldiers by this point, doesn't care. I don't care how many ships and men you lose. Get us the supplies we need so we can keep fighting because you're currently not doing anything about it except for North Africa. So again, he doesn't care about his own soldiers. He doesn't care about the British soldiers. Get us the supplies. But again, uh, the British had a practical reason why they were cutting back on their supplies to him. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, <clears throat> in 1941, 19th October 1941, again, so before the first meeting between Stalin and Churchill, Stalin wrote a cable to Ivan Maisky, who is the Russian ambassador to Britain, where he said, Churchill is aiming at the defeat of the USSR in order to come to terms with Germany without making this assumption. It is difficult to explain Churchill's conduct on the second front and the quantity of supplies to the USSR. So I think even after he met with Churchill, even though they, you know, hugged each other, uh, there's still that's fundamentally that's his concern is uh, Churchill actually doesn't want to see the USSR succeed. Um, he also said that Churchill is the kind of man who will pick your pocket for a kopeck, which is a ruble, right. if you don't watch him. That's so kind of petty, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I can I just throw out something real quick? I apologize for interrupting you, um, Sir Max Hastings, who has written several books on uh, World War Two. He he wrote about one part about where the. Um, allies were pretty much, excuse me, uh, the Americans and the British were pretty much lying to Stalin about whenever they were going to do the second front. He writes, Russia told us, and God knows the Russians did tell us great many lies, but the British and Americans tell the Russians many lies also. They broke they broke almost all their promises about aid deliveries to Russia in between 1941 and 43. And most importantly, they explicitly led Stalin to believe that D-Day on the continent was a, was a seriously on the agenda in 1942 when it was not. That um, the reason that they told Stalin what he wanted to hear was to keep him in their camp, because what is to stop Stalin who is getting his ass kicked left and right to, pummeled, to, yeah. Pummeled, yeah. So what's to stop him from going, you know, from contacting Hitler? Yeah, exactly. He turns to Hitler and he goes, you know what? You hate me, I hate you when we want to kill each other. But right now, you're getting the shit bombed out of you by the uh, by the by the British. They're, they're coming over and they're bombing German prop, Germany proper, and you're not doing so well uh, in North Africa. Let us call a truce, and then you can focus on them all you want, and I can go about my own. You know, almost like... um. 
the non-aggression pact part two. So they literally lied to Stalin to keep him from forming a peace. Not that I really think it was possible, but just the chance again, that 1% chance. So they, they, um, they kept him going, hoping he would never make a separate peace. And Stalin thought the same thing of them, that they would make a separate peace and let Germany wipe out Stalin. So no one absolutely trusts anyone, even though they they have to talk to him and work with him on a daily basis. Mm. And meanwhile, Germany was trying to break up the alliance between the UK and the Soviets, and uh, they, <laughs> they, they took some steps towards this in early 1943 when the Nazis dug up the bodies of between three to 4,000 Polish generals in mm. Poland in a place called Katyn, K-A-T-Y-N. Uh, it's known in the histories as the Katyn Massacre. They, mm-hmm. uh, the Nazis said the Russians had murdered these Polish generals in cold blood. It was this uh, just a massacre, bodies yeah. in a pit. <clears throat> and the thing is, the Nazis were telling the truth. <laughs> uh, we now know. The massacre was uh, sort of prompted by the head of the NKVD, the secret police, Barrier. Uh, he wanted to execute. This is back. This happened back in 1940 when uh, the the Germans and the Russians still had their non-aggression treaty, and they were both occupying Poland. Right. And uh, Beria wanted to execute all of the captive members of the Polish officer corps, mm. and it was approved by the Politburo of the Soviet Union, including Stalin. There's. Estimated the total victims were uh, in the vicinity of 22,000 Polish officers were executed. Oh, my God. Uh, some were in the Katyn Forest in Russia, uh, in well, Poland, sorry. Uh, others were in the Kalinin and Kharkiv prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, of the total killed, uh, about 8,000 were officers in prison during the 1939 uh, invasion of Poland. Another 6,000 were police officers. And the rest were Polish intelligentsia that the Soviets thought were, you know, agents for foreign uh, right. uh, governments or, or other problem makers like priests or lawyers or landowners, yeah. saboteurs. They can't all be spies, but yes, they were not what the communists wanted to deal with. And so being Stalin, he had them removed. And so the Nazis said, oh, look, mass graves uh, executed by the Soviets. Uh, wow. And these are the people that the U.S. are uh, sorry, the U.K. and the U.S. are in partnership with. Look how yeah. evil. Look how evil the allies are. They, they're killing people. We're not. I mean, no. we, we don't yeah. do any mass killings. <laughs> Nazis. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're crazy. Go home. We, we only, Go home. We only kill in war as is proper. They were just lining these people up and shooting them. But I'm trying to think, I guess the Nazis were desperate enough to really think that the Americans and the British were going, what? They did what? No, we're not sending them anything more. Glove. We're going to step back. Hitler, go for it. I mean, I guess yeah. that's what they was hoping for. Sorry, the Katyn Forest was in Russia, I think, not in Poland. Um, yeah, and Kalinin is, is to the northwest of Moscow. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. If it's in Russia, I don't know how the uh, uh, Germans managed to dig up the grave. Oh, I guess they were, they'd were they occupied that part of it at right. the time. Yeah, it makes exactly. sense. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, so the, the, the Nazis reveal these mass graves and... 
then Stalin goes, what? Fuck off. What are you talking about? Was it us? No. And even the US and the UK went, no, they didn't do it. No, no, it was, they, they guys just, they tripped and fell into that pit. Right. It's, it's, what are you talking about? That was an accident. Could have happened to anyone. Now we, we know, whoops. We know today that the US and the the UK privately were absolutely convinced that the Soviets were responsible for the massacre. Yeah. Uh, but they decided to deny it and to ignore it, which is the mm. point of telling the story. Tacky but necessary. Churchill sent a note to Stalin at the time that said, we shall certainly oppose vigorously any investigation by the International Red Cross or any other body in any territory under German authority. Such investigation would be a fraud and its conclusions reached by terrorism. Mm-hmm. In other so, words, thank you for bleeding Nazi Germany dry. Let me do you this little solid. Yeah, even though the Polish are not only our allies, not only is the Polish government in exile based in London, yeah. not only is Poland the reason we got into the war in the <laughs> exactly. first place. we declared a war because of Poland, yes. But right now, we don't give a fuck. Nope. Uh, you're more important. That's and right. the lesson to remember here, I think, is that it doesn't matter what atrocities someone has do- done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if they're on your side. Yeah, that that is just... Um, what do you call it? Realpolitik. That is just the nature of the reality. I need this guy. My life depends on it. I have to, I have no choice. I have to gloss over his wrongs because without him, I'm not sure I have a future. So, And it, it's, it's not even whether or not your life depends on it. It's whether you, how much trade you do with them. I mean, we right, we right. all know that Saddam Hussein was responsible for incredible atrocities uh, with the Kurds and throughout Iraq, his enemies in Iraq. For and, and not to mention, you know, these, his war against the Iranians for decades from the mid to late 60s through to the early 90s, mm-hmm. while the US was actively supporting his uh, autocratic control of Iraq yeah. and actively funding and supporting with material his war against Iran. They didn't give a fuck about his atrocities because he was their business right. partner. They, right. their, their, their existence and livelihood uh, didn't depend on him. Right. Uh, he was he was just on their side for the time. He, as soon as he wasn't anymore, he was the greatest evil in the world. Right, right. right. Yeah. So, but, no, he, he was their guy in the Middle East, and you back him up no matter what. One of their guys. A bit one like Israel guys. is. Right. You know, and I know we have a lot of Israeli listeners. I've been getting lots of emails from Israeli listeners to the show, and uh, I don't know the political stance from all of them. Some of them have told me where they sit, but... Yeah, and some are Israelis living in America, and some are Israelis living in Israel. And you know, I we're not going to get into Israel right now. We will later on in the show, but yeah, because it's reality, fa- it's history, it's facts. Fairly well understood that both Israel and Palestine are involved in lots of atrocities, and they justify them till the cows come home. Well, yeah, but he did that to me, right. and then first. It's personal <clears throat> now, yeah. And and this is well understood in the US, but the US continues both sides of the political divide over there. Hillary Clinton, as much as Trump, very, very pro-Israel, despite the fact that uh, Israel, under, uh, under the Netanyahu government in particular, responsible for extreme atrocities and are condemned mm-hmm. constantly by the United Nations Absolutely. Uh, and, and human rights organizations around yeah. the world. But the US really... 
at the end of the day, doesn't give a fuck. They're still giving him $3 billion in uh, a year in military support and funding because they're our friends. Anyway, moving on. Uh, We're at an hour. Shit. Yeah. Um, We'll keep going a little bit. So um, during 1943, also the Soviets started to turn it around. They had major victories, including Stalingrad, which we've mentioned before, which was a brutal, brutal yeah. uh, conflict. Was I think it was the biggest uh, biggest single battle in the war. Yeah, and at that II. point, right, and at that point, the Germans pretty much lost the initiative. They would spend the rest of the war reacting to. So not only was it was it critical in that way, but like you said, they it was one of the biggest battles, if not the, and they lost uh, so many men. And then you had the Battle of Kursk, where which was one of the largest up until that point, the largest tank battles. I mean, we're talking like 5,000 tanks on one side, 7,000 oh. tanks on the other. You, uh, The Germans had, two, uh, excuse me, the Russians had 2.5 million men on a counteroffensive. They were taken on the Germans who had a million men. The U- USSR had 7,000 tanks. The Germans had 3,000 tanks. And so it was just this huge, ugly, bloody, catastrophic just beyond imagining scale a series of battles that the that the nazi uh, excuse me that the soviets were able to win obviously they lost a lot of men but it turned things around for them so things are starting to look good but you still have to stay partners because you can't give up and they still need supplies from the united states and from britain so the partnership has to continue even though things are starting to look like they're going to turn around imagine being a witness to the battle of kursk that's just what do you say. Uh, so there's like fourteen thousand tanks going at each other. Yeah, and uh, and a oh million men. Yeah, more than a million wow. men on each side. I I cannot, and, and I haven't even mentioned. I think it was like twenty or twenty five thousand artillery pieces on each side. So I I cannot even imagine the scale. How do you direct something like that? I mean, it just must have been a melee, and you just fought the person in front of you, and you hoped you didn't die. I mean, it, it just had to be massive confusion and terror. Two, the the, the uh, offensive was 250 kilometers or 160 yeah. miles long from north to south and yeah. 160 kilometers or 99 miles from east to west. Jeez, beyond my imagination. Imagine just being a witness to that, man. It's yeah. insane. What a level of insanity. Yeah. So they, anyway. They bled uh, each I, other dry. They bled each I, other dry. I'm just trying to quickly run through uh, sort of the highlights of 1943 because we don't have time to get into the details. That's what your show's for. Mm -hmm. Um, The uh, Anglo-American troops had sort of subdued the German submarines in the Atlantic, destroyed the Axis in North Africa, the uh, Mm -hmm. underbelly of Churchill's uh, crocodile. Right. In Italy, Mussolini had fallen. Mm. The Japanese were also suffering from U.S. submarines and the U.S. Army in China. So these things are happening in 1943, but the Grand Alliance isn't going terribly well uh, because of some of the things you mentioned before, the constant broken promises from the U.S. and the U.K. about opening a second front, partly because of the reveal of the Katyn massacre, the delays Mm -hmm. in the Lend-Lease deliveries. Yeah. And the UK and the USA were still concerned about Soviet secretness. Uh, the Soviets still weren't be- really being very open with them about their own plans. Right. Uh, because they still expected to get screwed over by yeah. the capitalists and the imperialists. And, you know, they kept breaking their promises. The 
the uh, UK and the USA, that is, the Anglo-Americans breaking their promises to Russia. So it wasn't really a big three. It was the big two plus big one. Uh, really. <laughs> right, uh, right. They weren't really working together as partners in any sort of open and honest cooperation. Yeah. They yeah, were so- also actively spying on each other. Yeah. And, and again, you can say what you want about the Soviets or the Russians. Forget Soviet for a second. And and I've been always been meaning to look into this to try to find out the the hard whys. But the Soviets, the Russians, have always had brilliant spy organization networks. Whether it's in China, whether it's in the United States, in the Britain, but they, but that's something that they get a lot out of. They put a lot of resources into it, and they so they have an idea of what's going on in the other guy's camp. And and the Americans and the British just didn't hardly know anything about what was going on in Russia besides what they were told. And so, again, just these two sides are not trusting each other. And they're not even trusting what they're being told because both sides have been lying since this whole thing started. Yeah. And, you know, Stalin's uh, intelligence was so great that he knew about the Manhattan Project without the U.S. telling him about it. They wouldn't officially tell him about it until not long before they actually dropped the bombs in 45. Right. Uh, and we'll get to that later on. But he he knew what was going on. Yeah. Uh, and he was just waiting for them to tell him. And they mm. didn't. And imagine... Imagine what that does to the level of trust that he has in <laughs> yeah. his quote unquote partners. They are, you know, building this mother of all bombs, mother right. of all weapons, and they're not telling him about it. And he knows that they're telling the Brits about it. He knows that yeah. the Brits are their partners. In fact, a lot of the the scientists, uh, the leading research being done on it is coming from the Brits. But uh, Americans are putting up the money in the facilities and the Brits are providing a lot of the brains. Uh, but uh, they're not telling their quote-unquote right. partner, partner about it. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, oh, right, well, yeah, fuck, you yeah. really trust me with your secrets. Why <laughs> should I trust you. you with my secrets? Exactly, exactly. Mm. In 1943, uh, notably, Stalin also dissolved the Comintern, mm-hmm. which was the Communist International. He called it obsolete now, the common turn for people who aren't familiar with that, it was also known as the Third International. It was created in 1919, just after the Russian Revolution, and it was an international communist organization that advocated world communism. Uh, they would get together every couple of years. All of the leading communist thinkers of the communist right. parties around the world would get together for world congresses to discuss the communist uh, global revolution led by Russia, of course. They had seven world congresses between 1919 and 1935. But in 1943, Stalin called it obsolete. um, And this was widely interpreted as him abandoning the idea of a global communist revolution. He, as we've mentioned before, was a proponent of communism in one country, uh, rather than the view that Star, uh, that Lenin and Trotsky and a lot of other uh, of the Bolshevist, 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 Bolshevik and uh, Menshevik thinkers had, which was in order for, and this goes back to Marx and Engels, in order for communism to be successful, it had to happen almost simultaneously around the world. Otherwise, you would have imperialist and capitalist countries trying to crush 
the communist right. uh, countries. So they ne- it needed to happen in rapid succession. Uh, Stalin was like, you know what, that we tried that, it didn't work. So let's just make the Soviet Union massively successful, both uh, from an industrial perspective and an economic perspective and a military perspective. And then we will be able to introduce communism either at the point of a gun or just through uh, military and economic support of other countries later on. However, uh, you know, there's also this idea that by dissolving the common turn, it was a propaganda win for him right. in terms of the perception of Stalin and uh, the Soviet Union in places like the US and the UK. The, the media were like, oh, look, Stalin's a good he's guy. Given up, he's, yeah. he's given up. Yeah, he's given up on global revolution. So we should definitely continue to support him. <laughs> Uh, but we know uh, today, uh, as a result of the opening up of the archives, that he was still uh, indirectly in control <laughs> of the communist parties around the world, writing lots of letters, telling them right. what to do, uh, but hoping that they would rise up and take power on their own without having to have any overt involvement right. coming conflict. out yeah. of Moscow. And yeah. I think... yeah. Well, I think we should wrap it up. Sorry, do you, you got something you want to Yeah, wrap I just it up? want to end something real quick. Yeah, so on that last part about dissolving the common turn, yeah, that was uh, bullshit. It was propaganda. This is me being a good American. Uh, it was uh, propaganda, and that he knew by the time the war was over with, Russia would be so denuded of men, they couldn't Ooh. physically force. Uh, oh, dude, that's of men. Thank you. I've got I'm a trying. picture of Stalin naked now. <laughs> No, just take on, some right. scissors and denute. No, um, yeah, so so he knew that, that Russia would be too weak as far as manpower for, for a while because, you know, generate a generation had been lost. And so what he's going to try and do afterwards yeah. is he's still going to try to politically dominate Europe. Uh, and so control it. And like you said, he absolutely still had his fingers, his agents who were called advisors in various political, uh, excuse me, communist uh, parties in other countries. And he was still supplying them with weapons and cash or whatever. So he was going to try it another way. But because he can't just go in there and take it, he's going to turn it to his advantage and come up with this excellent uh, propaganda coup by going, you know what? I'm not even going to try anymore. I was dissolved. We're just going to focus on us. Let everybody live the way they want to. And of course, that was that was horseshit. But I did want to just mention one more thing before we go. You mentioned the crocodile. So when um, St- uh, when Churchill meets Stalin, he says, OK, no, we're not going to go into northern France. We're not going to land on the continent. However, we are going to go to French Morocco in November of 1942. We're going to land there with the Americans. We're going to work work our way over, and then we'll jump on the mainland. So we are doing something. And, of course, Stalin's attitude is, this is not helping me at all. If you take over North Africa, that, that doesn't do shit for me. I need you on the continent with me. And so, again, Churchill was trying to throw him a, a bone, but it absolutely did not appease uh, Stalin, which is why he launched into him the next day and called them pussies for not wanting to fight the Germans. And he, like you said, he actually drew a picture of a crocodile. Here's the jaws and here's the soft underbelly. And that's what we're going to go for right now, because that is all we can do. You have to give us more time. And what can Stalin say to that? Yeah, we told that story in the last Oh, I'm episode. sorry. I apologize. Feel free to edit, edit out. I apologize. Yeah, no, that's all right. You no, just keep. Yeah, I mean, it's good to repeat. You know, obviously, yeah. you weren't listening, so maybe no. they weren't listening either. And uh, it's a win-win. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what have we learned today? We've learned that uh, the big three, they didn't really trust each other, even when they were partners. (laughs) And they were keeping secrets. They were telling lies, breaking promises. But they were drinking together and having a good time occasionally. And there was a level of respect at the in- level of right. the individual. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, and that continues when they, they all meet up. FDR joins the, joins the drinking party, <laughs> as we will see in the next episode. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.